Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen Money Matters. Don't forget us when you're a baller. That's from me. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking? I feel like it's that's fine. just very Thomas-like. Thomas quoting himself. <laughs> hey, I didn't put that quote from me. No, like, actually, someone submitted it. Somebody send us, send us my own quote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dude, I am drinking. I Im- think it's a good quote. It's awesome. You, you're a very quotable person. <laughs> uh, I am drinking Imperial Donut Break. And on the mm. side, it says glazed. And it is good. Ooh. It is dark as night. You've slipped into the downers. I'm drinking coffee. So mm. still in the ups. And a big bottle of water. Gotta have it. Anyway, I guess the quote this week, uh, catchphrase, is from me. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> thanks but for participating, I, Thomas. Yeah. Thanks for letting me quote myself. I'm okay with that. Uh, anyway, if you guys have catchphrases you want us to say at the top of the show or you have some embarrassing song lyrics for Andrew to sing, listen money matters at gmail.com or our Twitter handle at Money Matters Man is where you can submit those catchphrases to get them read on the show. So go ahead and do that. We need your catchphrases. Apparently, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel and using quotes from us at this point. <laughs> <laughs> You guys aren't doing your jobs. Come on. (laughs) And speaking of jobs, today we are doing an episode on salary negotiation because we have our friend Josh Duty on the episode. And uh, Josh is an expert on salary negotiation and uh, what to do in the interview, how to know what your market value is, all that kind of good stuff. So, Josh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on, Andrew and Thomas. Uh, Looking forward to chatting with you for a little bit. Yeah, Absolutely. and before we get into uh, salary negotiation, you were telling us that you have your own personal finance story, which Andrew didn't let you tell off air, so I'm curious. What's that story? <laughs> yeah, Andrew wisely cut me off um, uh, uh, early on, and I think that's that's good because this will be as much a surprise uh, to both of you as everybody else, so that's great. Who's got time um, to hear stories twice, right? Right. I think uh, <laughs> that, sh- that should be your next episode's quote. Um, yeah, there we go. All right, write that down. You got it. Book it. <laughs> Tweet it to you, Andrew. Who's got time to hear this shit twice, Andrew? <laughs> okay, let's go. <laughs> One time only, please. Um, yeah, so uh, my story goes back uh, to, I would say, around 2008. I was working. I had a day job, a full-time job, and... Um, I think it literally happened, you know, one day, kind of like a lightning bolt. I was I was in my office and I was working. The financial crisis was sort of happening uh, real time. And I had this moment where I realized that if I lost my job, uh, I would be in very, very big trouble because I had uh, some money on a 0% credit card. I don't know if you guys remember those. I don't think they're really around too much anymore. Um, but, you know, I thought, well, I'm borrowing free money. You know, so I'd done some home improvements on that. And um, I had a car payment and I had student loans and I was just about to start MBA school for grad school. So I was going to take on more student loans. And that was a moment where I realized, well, the way that I'm budgeting my money needs to change. And the way that I'm spending my money and the way that I'm saving my money needs to change. Because the thing that bothered me most was not that I would be in trouble if I lost my job, but that I had to have my job to stay out of trouble. Um, I don't know if flipping it around that way really makes sense to anybody but me. But I realized that I had to have a job, which meant that I didn't have options. Mm. And the the lack of options really bothered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I started immediately started making some changes. I, uh, first killed that credit card. Um, and, and really all I did was just start being smarter about where my money went. And all, I, I just switched this mode where for several years after that, the first thing that happened was I, I paid down debt. Um, and then if I had money left over, maybe I went on a vacation, um, and that kind of thing. And so first the credit card went, um, then I went to grad school, which made it hard to pay down debt cause I was accumulating, um, but, uh, I, I was a lot smarter about my money. I paid off my car next because having car debt liability felt weird to me. Um, and then over the next several years, I just paid down debt and paid down debt. Um, while my income continued to rise, uh, once I earned my MBA and all that good stuff. And so then I flipped it to where I said, well, all my debt is gone except for my mortgage, which I had refinanced at like 3% is what it's at or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and I, I made a conscious decision that I'd rather have liquid money than pay down a 3% obligation. Um, that just wasn't, wasn't cost me that much money. And then I just started saving like crazy. And I did that for only about 15 months, but because my cost of living was so low and because my income had risen and because my costs in general had dropped, I was able to save up enough money in about 15 months, um, to quit my day job and, and do what I'm doing now with about an 18 month runway in the bank. Um, 
And so, nice. uh, so that's, that's how I got here to, you know, to be talking to you guys today. That story is really what leads to where we are right now, um, where I'm actually building a business and, and able to focus full time on a business instead of having to show up at work every day, uh, just to make sure that I can service all my debt and, and not get canned and, and, and have build someone else's myself. business. Yeah, that's, that's a big driver for me too, is I've said out loud several times, like I'm tired of making other people rich. Um, and, uh, that's, I, I understand that for a lot of people, that's Which fine. reminds think, me, thank you for coming on the show. This is doing really good for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it, I think it depends on who you are, right? Like I, my first job out of, um, college, I worked for a big department of defense contractor and mm -hmm. there were a lot of people there who were just lifers. They were going to be there for 25 or 30 years or whatever until they could quit and they could get their pension after they retired. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and they had really good lives. They worked, you know, eight to five, but actually they were flexing every other Friday. So they worked, you know, nine days every two weeks. They had not, no responsibilities on the weekends or at night. Nobody expected them to be in the office at 6 a.m. Um, they had really good lives uh, and they were really happy with them. And I think that's fantastic for them. But for me, that's not the, the way that I want to live my life. And I'd rather yeah. try and try and make my own way. And so that was where I kind of had that moment in 2008 where I said, if I want that to happen, I've got to make some changes with the way that I'm managing money and thinking about personal finance. Yeah, absolutely. Some people are totally fine with trading a fixed amount of hours for a fixed amount of dollars. And, you know, I don't really fault them for that if they like that. But I think you and I are very similar, Josh. We're, and I think you, you, you too, Andrew. Um, every thank, thank you. ounce of effort that I expend should create momentum that is self-sustaining in some way. Anytime I do work where I know that I am trading a fixed amount of work for a fixed amount of return, I hate that kind of work. So that's why I do what I do. It seems like that's what you're doing, what you're doing. And I think that's like the hallmark of an entrepreneur. Create something that becomes bigger than yourself after you put in some effort. Something durable. Yeah, I, I like the way that you phrase that. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do now is not just build a thing, but build a thing that will let me build other things or that will allow me to build other things while this thing um, helps me pay my bills or, or something like that. Right. I want to build something durable that I own. And that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty key for me. I find I'm finding that just the ownership of it is pretty important. Um, even if I'm sacrificing in the short term, you know, that nice, sweet, sweet day job income. Um, so. speaking of, of which you, you have a book called fearless salary negotiation, which I believe uh, you meant as an oxymoron, right? Uh, cause that seems like a pretty fearful thing. Like, what's up with that? Yeah, I wanted to get right out in front of it on the cover, right? So, so I think that's something that everybody's thinking is, you know, when you start talking to people about salary negotiation, and my inbox is is full of confirmation of this, what I'm about to say, but people are terrified of it. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get right out and say, look, you don't have to be afraid of it. It's it's not something you have to be afraid of, especially because of the way that I approach it, which is I come from an engineering background. So um, a way that I overcome fear a lot of times is to say, well, let me forget about the thing I'm fearful of. Is there just a process that I can follow to accomplish that thing or to do that activity that I'm afraid of? Mm. Um, and so that's that's where I was coming from with the cover is I know that people are afraid of this. Let me just get right out and tell them that you can do this without being afraid. And what's inside the book is the way to do that. So, yeah, I was definitely just trying to get out in front of it and and immediately address the the big uh, you know, the, the big thing that everybody's afraid of, which is salary negotiation and say, come on inside and we'll talk about how to do this without being afraid of it. And the solution yeah. is to just hire someone else to do it for you, right? <laughs> hire That's a high one solution. lawyer to go into the boss's office with sunglasses on, of course, <laughs> and demand higher salary. And a retainer. You. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. need a high yeah, enough so salary to pay for the lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I need I'm going to need 30 percent more than you're offering because this lawyer is killing me on this <laughs> hourly. <laughs> seriously, though, um, I totally get the fear aspect because when uh, when I was in college, I had all the part time jobs and there was always this feeling that like if you went and asked for more money, it's like the Oliver Twist, like asking for more thing. Like they're just going to hit you in the head with a soup ladle or fire you. Like how dare you be so audacious as to want more than we've graciously given you kind of thing. But yeah. as somebody who now pays people, I've realized that like that is the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, unless unless I was employing somebody who was bad at their job, um, I'm never going to be offended if they ask for more money. I'll just be like, oh, what's your case for wanting more money? And if it doesn't work, I'm going to be like, well, it doesn't work. Uh, but if it does, bam, there you go. Right. I think I think you just articulated it pretty well, which is, you know, as, as flipping it around from 
the hiring person side or the manager side to the employee side um, or the candidate side if you're trying to get a job, uh, the first thing that you need to do is understand what you want to ask for, but then also realize that you need to demonstrate the value that you're going to bring to justify your ask. So yeah. you, if you, you can ask for significantly more money if you can also come right in behind that and say, and here's why. Um, you know, reasons A, B, and C, um, it really helps when you're asking for a raise at work if you can actually demonstrate, you know, the monetary value of some activities that you're doing that were unanticipated when your salary was set. So I think, you know, going back to you mentioning paying people to do work, when you agree to pay somebody to do work, you have some idea in mind what they're supposed to do for that pay, like what you're agreeing yep. to pay them for. And so you're not, people think that, you know, being in a job for a long time is a reason to get more money. But if you're still doing exactly the same stuff that you were hired to do, that's really hard to justify from a cost perspective at a company. Yeah, right? exactly. And so you, you want the things that are unanticipated that you didn't anticipate when you started. And you're saying, here's the things that I'm doing now. Here's the value of those things that wasn't anticipated. Can we talk about compensating you more for those things? Josh, yeah. how much of how much is appropriate though? Because for example, there are a lot of people who get the wage they get because it's difficult to find and hire those people, maybe because their skills are, are really niche down or took a long time to build up. Um, like is it appropriate to go to your to your boss and like, I think I should get a raise because if you lost me, it would be really challenging to find someone to replace me. Or is that like really arrogant and you know, <laughs> I feel like you would need a less um, openly hostile reason. Otherwise, you kind of look like you're I, don't, I would never want to go into a negotiation situation with like a blatant like I have you by the balls kind of tactic. Like I would want to communicate. Here's how you're going to benefit from paying me more. Not here's how you're going to remain the same by paying me more because that just sounds like mafia kind of extortion. Um, yeah, I like I like the way that you phrase that, actually. And, and I think, uh, to be honest, I think this is a very sort of stylistic thing. So I've got a certain style to my negotiation coaching and to what I write about that you'll see, which is I like to describe it as a collaboration, not a confrontation. Mm -hmm. So I, I see it as, uh, yes, you could. I think you probably could often get a pretty large raise by using, you know, exactly the tactic that Andrew just described. I think you that could work for you. Unfortunately, I also think that the next day, you're going to have to go talk to your boss again about that report that's due before lunch or about the the meeting that you have next week or about the person you want to hire. And that conversation is going to be a little bit awkward if you just went in yesterday and like you said, sort of used like a, a heavy mafia tactic, tactic to extort more money. Um, yeah. So I do, I do think it could work. So I will not say that won't work, but I will say that I like my way better in that you're collaborating mm -hmm. saying, let's work together here to understand that I am adding more value to the company. Here's how I think I'm adding value and here's the compensation that I think I deserve for adding that value. Can you now, give some specific examples? Like yeah. um, what you might say for a particular role uh, just to help well, us like, like visualize. Like you sure. hired me to throw rocks at your neighbor's house. I've also been putting dog poop on his porch, which is makes him even more mad, right? You should pay me more for that. <laughs> right. I would try and scale that up. I would say that I found another neighbor that you don't like and I'm throwing rocks at their house too. Uh, and I've got you covered there, right? So I'm doing twice the vandalism that you're paying me to do. Yeah. Can you increase my pay by 30%, right? That's a reasonable way to do it in that I've example. I've been thinking about adding eggs. Like I got some TP right. ideas, you know, I need some funding. be more effective. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that that's a good question. I'd like you asking for a specific example. So um, I'll pick uh, project management because I used to work as a project manager. It'll be easier for me to formulate on the fly here. Cool. Um, I could, I've also written an article for specifically for software developers that has some good examples, but I can't recall them as easily. Um, so a project manager's basic job is to manage projects. Usually it's you're, you're measuring how much work they're doing in the number of projects they're managing and or the quote unquote size of the project, which is usually measured in, you know, dollars of, of revenue to the company. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's like, there's like mid market, uh, which is, you know, up to $250,000 in value to the company, uh, enterprise, which is a million plus or whatever. Right. And so that's pretty much the job you, you do. You manage the projects, some number of projects, some amount of value. And so, um, also you're going to have other responsibilities like reporting to your manager. You're going to have like a, a your manager is going to have several project managers and they're going to want to know, are you on budget? Are you on time for all your projects? How's it going? So they can manage that part of the business. So one way to, to, to add more value there would be, 
to figure out a way to manage higher value projects. So look, I'm only one project manager. You expect me to manage three projects of a quarter million dollars a piece. I'm actually managing four projects and one of them is half a million dollars. So I'm managing significantly more revenue for the business than you expected when I was hired. Can we talk about increasing my pay? Because if, if I didn't do that, you would have to hire someone else. So that mm -hmm. may sound a lot like what Andrew said earlier, but in a more collaborative rather than confrontational way. So that's one kind of example mm -hmm. is just do more. Sometimes it can be things like, I mentioned earlier, there's reporting that will have your, man your, your manager will have to do on all the projects that you're managing, the revenue and on time, on budget, customer sat, and all that good stuff that comes up. So mm -hmm. you're saying you can toot your own horn and say that uh, one, like you're maybe, maybe you're not replaceable, you're extremely important and you're doing more than necessary, but uh, not in, in a confrontational manner. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think a good mindset would be like, I think employees feel like they're stuck at their salary because the conversation happens once for most of them. But I mean, let's flip it and, and, and put it in terms of well, like no, see, I how think we the negotiate with sponsors, even, right? Well, so one second, because I think when you're in that room and first you're nervous anyways, because you had to pull them aside, yeah. whatever. I think that it feels confrontational regardless because you've cornered them in a room you're asking for things. They have to come up with a response to you. So even if you're not being like mafia-esque, it's still pretty aggressive. And I think that's what makes people feel uncomfortable. It is. It requires confidence. Yes. I mean, but the alternative is to just basically let them take advantage of you for as long as they're willing to. I mean, but some employers are going to come and like, be like, what if, I what if you're getting you paid like a, a solid salary? And, you know, say, say you make $100,000 a year, right? And yeah. all your friends are like, damn, dude, like, you're doing great. Um, and you know you're doing good, but you know you could make more because, like Josh said, you're now managing how many millions more in projects. So you should try and get more. Yeah. Well, then you're not, you're not being mafia, you know? You're just being, like, you're being honest about the value you're providing. And I think it is... It is on the owner of the business to, number one, recognize the value you're providing and then provide adequate compensation because that's how they stay competitive for employees to attract new employees and to keep their old ones. And it's also on them to become uh, confident enough to have a response. You know, I don't think you have to feel like you're putting them out by coming and asking this question. Yeah. If and I like it, Andrew, by the way, I, I appreciate that you're you're sort of giving voice to a lot of the people listening right now that what you're saying out loud is what they're saying in their head, right? Yeah. So I, I believe I, so. Cause I feel it. I, sometimes. I think so. I, I, I mean, I think I, I love that you're, you're doing that. Um, and just kind of playing that devil's advocate, right? Because that's what a lot of people are thinking. Um, so I think the first thing is that as Thomas kind of mentioned, companies exist to make money. Hiring an employee is a way for them to continue to make more money. And so mm -hmm. I think that money conversation is completely in play on the table for a, a company who's trying to make a profit or plans to make a profit in the future for an employee to say, hey, look, that's my job is to help you make a profit. I think I'm actually doing that better than you anticipated when you hired me. Let's talk about also helping me to get a little slice of that pie that I'm helping to create. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think also just sort of the collaborative idea um, going all the way back, you know, I wouldn't recommend just showing up in your manager's office and kind of cornering your manager and saying, I want more money because I did these three things and they're valuable. Even that way, right? You're still using the messaging that I mentioned earlier, but it's the wrong circumstance. I think first you do your research. You have an idea of specifically what you want to ask for. So you want to do as much of that work for your manager as possible and give them a heads up. I think it's very reasonable to say, hey, listen, we have a, a biweekly one-on-one on Wednesdays. Next Wednesday's one-on-one, -on -one, I'd like to talk to you about my compensation, if that's okay. Now, they're not going to be surprised. They're going to have the whole week to think about it. They're probably going to go to wow. HR and say, what is Josh making right now? And mm -hmm. they're going to, and they might even say, wow, he's, we're only paying him 70? That, okay, all right, now I know why he wants to talk to me. Or they'll say, we're already paying him 100, and he wants to talk about compensation. Okay, and then so they'll start doing their own research, and, and they'll have something ready. Then when you present them with, I would like to get a raise to 110. And here are the reasons that I think I'm worth 110 reason, reason, reason with, you know, value attached to them. Um, what can we do to make this happen? Then your manager can respond in a way that is always pretty much going to be one of three things, which is they're going to say, you're right. We're going to raise your salary to 110. That's the dream outcome, right? Mm -hmm. The second one is more likely, which is, well, we can't do that right now, but we can do it later. And then, of course, you can respond to the to the weight answer by saying, great. What specifically do I need to do to justify a salary of 110? And how long do you think it will take me to do that? So now we can put together a goal plan for me and say, well, if I hit these milestones in the next six months, my salary goes to 110. Or they'll say, no, 
we can't give you a race to 110. The, the business isn't healthy enough. Or we don't have that money. Josh, what if they say, uh, Josh, that, that's actually a really interesting thing you brought up. Um, let me go ask uh, my manager so-and-so. Uh, and we'll, we'll see what happens. Like, and, and then you just wait for I think you have to keep weeks. following up. Well, I, I thank you, Thomas. <laughs> but I guess like, I, I, I think that's, I think that's obvious. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to get at is maybe like Josh was saying before, putting a framework in place, because if you asked him on Monday, I think we would all agree it's inappropriate to ask him on Tuesday what his boss said and whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and do you need to follow up after that? And so, like, what works? What's what's appropriate? I love this question because you just, without knowing it, you just teed me up 100% for describing, Ooh. I think, what makes my approach to this unique. Yeah, so so it's like you're, you're throwing me softballs without even knowing. Um, so it's the practice. answer is... It's practice. It's practice. You, just, <laughs> you, could see, you could see it coming before I could see you see it coming. Um, so the answer is that when you do everything that I described is part of kind of a bigger framework where you're doing research ahead of time. And so I mentioned really um, two things that I'll turn into three right now. One of them is uh, you, you have an idea in mind specifically what you're going to ask for. Right. Mm -hmm. And so behind that kind of implied there, which we didn't talk about is market value research. So you should spend time and figure out what what is the value of the work that I'm doing uh, in the industry at this company, if I can figure out in this region. Right. And. How, so, so you're not just asking for a random number. You're asking for a number that's informed by research that you've done. So at least you're standing on solid ground. The second thing is your accomplishments. I've talked about those, which is the stuff that you've done and what the value is that's attached to it. And the third one is what I call accolades, which um, is essentially it would be called social proof in the marketing world. But it's you know evidence that other people have noticed the work that you're doing and the value that you're adding just in case your manager is too busy to see it, which to be honest with you, if you're, if you're really good at your job, there's a very good chance your manager is not aware how good you are at your job. Because mm -hmm. they don't have to ever think about you. They're putting out fires that other people are setting and not your fires. So they're not even aware of how good you are at your job. So the accolades help because you can say, back to the project manager example, well, here are three enterprise clients and their feedback they gave me in the last year on the projects that I manage for them. They say I'm amazing. And so now your manager says, okay, well, other people have noticed this. So you put all that into an email template that I use, which articulates exactly what you're asking for, why you're asking for it and makes your case. So your first follow up after you have that verbal conversation is to follow up that day with the email template. And the reason is exactly what you said, um, which is your manager will probably have to go to finance or somebody else and ask for approval or figure out what's the pay range that Josh is in and how much can we bump him up? Does he have to get a promotion? All that conversation has to happen. It will be a lot more efficient and better for you if you give your case in writing that your manager can then circulate behind the scenes as opposed to your manager trying to, you know, summarize a verbal conversation that they had with you and maybe, you know, kick off the highlights and forget the accolades and, and good things like that. I love the email template piece and the follow up because then they could one review it. They could easily just send that over without thought. Yep. Um, so so you you did this. And, and and let's say like that day or the next day, your boss asks his boss because uh, he cares about you. You know, he agrees with you or just wants to see what's possible. Um, you know, he did like the right thing. But the day after that, you know, he woke up, he had an argument with his wife, he has his own responsibilities at work, blah, blah, blah. Surprise, surprise, you're not at the forefront of his mind at all times. So when is when's the next like light touch or, or is it not I a light touch? Well, I, I think light touch is fine. I mean, you'll I think you kind of intuitively will know when it's time to go a little heavier than a light touch and to kind of say, look, I'm I'm serious about this request. But at first it could take a little while. Uh, that's why you're putting you're putting the email template that I suggested together, because you're expecting that your manager has to do some heavy lifting to make this happen. It's very unlikely that there's just, you know, a money tree out back and he's going to peel some hundreds off and hand them to you. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, a week is a reasonable interval. If you do have regular one-on-ones, then the next one-on-one, -on -one, you can say, hey, listen, we talked last time. I followed up with the email. Uh, did you have a chance to talk to finance or whoever about it? And, and what did they say? And you can kind of push that along. And if you find that you continue to get the cold shoulder, if you do not get a response from your manager, then I take that as either a wait or a no. And you have to start evaluating um, what your other options are. Uh, if your manager simply is not going to cooperate and try and help you get a raise, you can try and level jump so you can go find his manager or her manager and talk to them. Or um, you can start kind of accepting the fact that it sure looks like nobody's really eager to give me the raise that I asked for. So either 
I've asked for something that's unreasonable, in which case your manager should have given you some indication of that when you spoke, or mm-hmm. it's just not going to happen, right? So there, there is no magic bullet for getting raises. Like if there may not be money there. The money could be really suffering. Maybe they're, they're prepping for an exit, which means they're trying to get margins up and they can't afford to give anybody a raise for the next six months. And so it might be time to go look for other opportunities um, if, yeah. if your manager won't even talk to you about it. I think the thing is when when you start this and you go and ask your manager, you've put like this process in motion, right? And then like like you said, the the best outcome is but a split second later, they're like, "Absolutely, and we'll give you twice as much and like right. you're <laughs> and a free car." Like, but what's more likely is you put this in motion and and you could get a soft no, you could get a hard no. And then the the question is What's the appropriate action for you? Like, can, do you have to leave your job? Uh, do you eat it and are now you, you're like this sucker who just will, you know, not stand up for themselves? Like, like how do you kind of go forward after a no? Right. I think, first of all, I, I can't say this 100% certainly, but I think it'd be pretty rare that you simply just would not get a response from your manager. Hmm. Um, I think it, it, and the reason is, you know, think about yourself in that situation. How long could you evade? an employee who you talk to frequently, either even if it's in Slack or um, on Skype or in your office once a week, once every two weeks, how long could you uh, evade that person? Really? Yeah, Mm. it would be really hard. And, and there are, I, I, there are people I'm sure who are the personality type who could do this all day, but I think it'd be pretty rare. So usually you, you will have gotten some kind of answer, even if it's like, "Eh, we can't do that right now. Talk to me later. And if they Mm. keep delaying, then what you realize with after enough delays, if this is still going on after months, after three, four, five, six months, and they keep saying, talk to me later, talk to me later, what they're telling you is no, but they just can't bring themselves to say the word no. Yeah. And so, so at, at some point you have to kind of just step back and say, am I getting a no here? And if you're getting a no, then your question fully comes into play, which is, well, what do you do about it? And I think your options are look for another opportunity or recognize that you should be paid more at your current opportunity, but you're willing to forego that additional pay because this is such a great opportunity. Maybe you have really flexible work hours. You can work whenever you want, wherever you want. You can work on weekends and nights, and that's great because you have kids at home and you like to be there when they get off of school, right? And you can't find that anywhere else. And so you're going to take, you know, a 20% cut on your pay for a better quality of life, which is a very rational and reasonable thing to do. I don't advocate that people just go chasing all the dollars everywhere. Uh, Or you decide I need to look somewhere else. This isn't, I'm not being compensated fairly. I did market research before I asked for a raise to a specific amount. I know that I'm adding value because I put it in writing. I've seen it on paper myself and I made a really strong case. I even ran it by a couple of friends who totally agreed that I should be paid more. I'm going to go see if I can actually go to the market and find someone on the market who will pay me more for the skills and experience that I bring. And I'm looking to, you know, take my talents to South Beach. Yeah. So uh, what exactly do you do when you do market research? Do you ask other people, other companies, what they're making? Do you just like go look on Monster for salaries in your area? Like, yes. What's the process? Uh, so, all the things. So, <laughs> yeah, I do all the things. So it starts. Um, I I like to approach it in three layers that start really broad and then narrow down as as narrow as you can get. So the first layer is industry research, um, and that's what you said. Monster. Um, I like Glassdoor. Um, because it's really easy to get numbers out of Glassdoor with just a few clicks. Um, mm-hmm. And they don't require an email address, whereas some other sites want you know to sign up for their mailing list and all this stuff. So, so Glassdoor, Payscale, Salary.com, Monster.com. If you're in the IT world, uh, Paysa.com, P-A-Y-S-A.com, I think it's a really slick tool that lets you get nice detailed salary information for even jobs at specific companies and specific zip codes. Um, so you do all I this. I saw that recently. Yeah, it's a great little site. By the way, uh, on some of these sites, you will find that I've written for their blogs and I'm not I'm not compensated for mentioning them. So I guess I should just <laughs> say that um, I just happen to have, have guest posted for them um, yeah. or been interviewed. Um, so you use those sites and, and you'll find that some industries have more data than others on certain sites. So that's why I'm kind of throwing out a whole bunch of sites um, for people to try because you don't know your industry might just not have good data on one, but it will on another. So you get the industry okay. data. Well, you know, what's my what what? is the approximate salary someone with my skill set and experience is paid in my industry. Now you have your kind of baseline. You've got a ballpark number, right? The next layer is one layer kind of closer to you, which is in your region. So, well, I live on the West Coast or I live on the Northeast or I live in Texas. Or I was I live just going to call you out on that. Yeah, because it's very right. different where you live. Completely mm-hmm. different. 
So you have to start with that baseline because that's averaging, you know, I'm talking really US here. This is kind of true in Europe and other places, but I'm, I'm focused on the US market here. So yeah, so you have to say, well, okay, the average is $125,000 a year, but most of those people live in Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. so as a person who lives in Iowa, I might get that kind of money if I happen to work remotely for a Silicon Valley company, but probably not because I'm looking at a company that's local in Iowa. So yeah. what is this person making in Iowa? And you can do that in two ways. One is putting a zip code or something like that into one of those tools I mentioned, it'll narrow it down for you. Uh, the other is if you know people from conferences or trade shows or meetups around the area, you can talk to them. Um, and so this is, you know, exactly what you said, which is you can ask people. So you're probably thinking, I'm not asking people what their salary is. That's not cool in, in the U S that's taboo. Mm -hmm. So a little hack that I have for that is don't ask them what they're making. Ask them what a hypothetical person who looks like them might make if they were hired at their company today. Mm -hmm. So, or yourself. So yeah, you're a, you know, a, a product to use the same example, you're a project manager, um, at this company, uh, and you've been there like 10 years. What do you think today, if they hired somebody with 10 years of experience in project management at your company, what do you think they'd get paid? And they'll basically tell you their salary, right? Yeah. You're giving them a nice little out. Um, so that's the second layer, your regional, what's the region. And then the third layer is actually that company specific, like try and find those people at the company. So you might know a hiring manager at the company, um, if you already work there, maybe, you know, some other people who have your job and you wonder what they make the same hypothetical work. Um, if you know a hiring manager and you're trying to get hired there, you could just ask them, do you know about what the ballpark is for this role? What's, what's the range? And so you're just getting more and more information and dialing in that number for your market value estimate. So, so to now go when you're, uh, I want to go a bit deeper on that real okay. quick because, okay. sure. uh, like you're, it's likely that you're part of a team and it's likely that you're doing things that other people on the team are also doing. So in the perfect world, you'd all be making the exact same salary because you're all doing the same thing, but that's never the case. Um, mm -hmm. And your employer says, don't ever tell anyone your salary because it's highly confidential, which makes a ton of sense for the company because if you all colluded, you'd all make more money. At, at my job, I'm like that guy that like basically like forces everyone to kind of like discuss these things um, because I'm like out there. But uh, how could you, or do you even think it's a good idea to, to foster something amongst your team to share this information? I don't even think it has to be fostered. Every job that I've ever worked at, if we're not explicitly sharing salary information, everybody pretty much knows, right? And, and it's partially because you have these kind of hypotheticals and you'll hear like, Maybe, you know, Frank won't tell you his salary, but, you know, Janet will tell you that she happens to know what Frank's salary is because he was hired right when she was hired. And she knows that everybody that was hired on that day making doing that job made the same money, you know. Mm. So so it sort of just bubbles up. I mean, it's I would say it's nearly impossible for a company to really enforce the idea that like nobody's going to talk about salaries around here. Nobody will know the salaries. Right. Um, it's just not going to happen. So I, I don't know if you have to foster it. But I wouldn't shy away from it. Um, if there's somebody who clearly is not comfortable talking about that, just don't include them and, and only talk to the, the people who are comfortable. I understand someone who may not want to talk about their salary or others. I think most people pretty much want to know if they're aligned with everybody else. And so they're willing to kind of contribute knowing I got to play this game or I'm not going to get information back from other people. Is it a valid reason if for me to go to my manager and be like, look, Josh is making 120 and I'm only making 110 insert really good follow-up statement you know i think you you could you could do that but i would say i bet you could have the same conversation without outing josh um uh, like right? you're basically so then throwing you're, him under the bus is what you're saying yeah okay i i think you know i i think it, it could work but i i bet you could have the same conversation you so i think it's very important when you have information to protect it so really quick sidebar i played poker for a very long time about 10 years uh never technically professionally but um pretty close to a professional level. I wrote a book on it. And one of the things that you learn in poker is information is the most valuable resource in that game uh, mm -hmm. above all else. And it's true in your career too, especially as a, as a person, you've got very little information that the company doesn't have. So if you think about the company knows what everybody in the department is making, the company knows what everybody in the world who has that position is making. They know how badly they need to hire people, how much productivity they have. They know what their margin, they know all this stuff. All you know is pretty much what you make. Right. And so you should, you should protect that information. So Anyway, I, I think I, I think that it's even if you know what somebody else is making, that's information that you should protect, not tell them that you have. 
You don't want them to know how you figured out that the magic number is 120. You just want them to know that you know that you're worth 120 and here are the reasons that you're worth 120 and let's talk about getting me that raise. Now, when you go into the negotiation process, are you saying I'm worth 120 or do you go in with a range in your head and say something like maybe the range in your head is 110 to 130? Would you, wouldn't you want to ask for 130? Or because, would you give no number Because at all? then, well, I mean, I feel like if you, if you go on the higher end of what's reasonable, you might get that higher end. But even if you don't, then you can make a concession and be like, all right, well, what about like 110, which is still within the range that I think I should be paid. Then they're more likely to at least give you something, right? So there are two situations here. Um, I'll say first, uh, neither of my answers will include a range. And that's because I tend to generally advise people, you know, think about what you would do if somebody came to you and said, I'll work for either somewhere between 10 and $20 an hour. You You're probably going to offer well, 10 yeah. I was saying, yeah. like, don't, don't communicate the range, but you probably have a range in your head. Oh, in your head, you sure. You want to communicate the highest end of that range because if you get it, then you're within your range, but you get the highest end, right? But then if I they think say that's, no, you can still, like, you're likely to get a concession that's still within that range. I think Rather totally than, like, reasonable. saying if you start at the low end of your range, then they're going to concede you down to beneath your range, right? I think so. Yeah, I think that's fine. Um, I, I call it your minimum acceptable salary, which is not necessarily a range, but it's going to mm -hmm. look like a range when you say, well, here's my minimum, but here's what I'm counter offering with. Um, okay. it, there are kind of two situations here. One of them is we've been talking almost exclusively about going to your manager and asking for a raise at a, at a job that you already have. And then there's a whole different area, um, which is negotiating a salary when you change companies. Right. Um, and so I think that in the former case, when you're at a company and you're asking for a raise, I think it really helps to ask for a specific amount because it okay. one shows that you've done research on it. And two, again, when you're in the company, you want to make this as easy on your manager as possible. You want to give them something to rubber stamp if they're ready to rubber stamp. And so if you go to them and say, Hey, I'd like a raise, how much do you think I should be given a raise for? Now they have to stop and think, well, I don't know. I mean, because yeah. your manager doesn't know what the market value is. You do. If you did the research, they have no idea. They're not doing market research on your job, right? They're yeah. they're running TPS reports or whatever they do. And doing um, it on their own job. And they'd probably give you less right. than you would want. Like, I remember um, I pay a freelance writer. And for a long time, I was paying him like 60 bucks an article. If he would have been like, hey, can I get more? I'd probably be like, sure, I'll pay you $100 an article. And in my mind, that would be a good raise. But what he did is like, hey... Um, I've been writing for you for a while and this is like a good market rate for an experienced freelance writer. Will you pay that? And I was like, yes. And that ends up being like 150 an article. So because Great he was example. able to come in with a number and he's able to sell me on that number, then he ended up making way more. And I'm still happy with it because I was given a good justification for why you should get that number. But I wouldn't have made that justification myself because I'm not a professional freelance writer who knows the market. Mm. That's a, you just gave a great example that sort of encapsulates the entire process that we've been talking about, right? Like a, that freelance writer did a great job there of saying, here's what I would like. Here's why I would like it. Here's some research that backs up my ask. Mm -hmm. um, so that's great. I, I think having that number just makes it easier for you just to say yes. On the other side, when you're changing companies, I do not think that you should be the first person to say the number. Um, I'm, and this is something okay. even just yesterday I had um, – uh, an interview published on glassdoor.com. And of course I went straight to the comments and everybody in the comments, not everybody, but a lot of the people in the comments are saying, I don't like this advice about not telling them what your salary requirements are. Just tell them your salary requirements. And, and I, I advocate that you don't tell them current and desired salary when you're changing companies because of the information asymmetry that I mentioned earlier, which is you just don't have any idea what they are willing to pay somebody like you. And you can't find that out if you tell them what you would like to be paid because they don't have any reason to tell you. So yeah, you, you hold out. So in that case, I think you should have numbers in your head. Like you said, a range in mind or what I call right. the minimum acceptable salary. Something like that is, is, is very important to the negotiation process so that you know when you're going to have to walk away if they can't get into that range or meet that minimum. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that you should tell them what you want. You should do your best to uh, avoid telling them your current or desired salary and then just look at the interview process as a series of opportunities to impress them to such a degree that they want to offer you more money. So yeah, you're, you're I also just feel to like it's highly risky to like put a number out there for, for them and for you. But yes, like you said, they probably have a much better idea. So like you could, you could be like, they're like, what do you want? And you're like, I want $300,000 and they're only ready to pay you 120. So now you're out of the game, but maybe you would have been happy yeah. with 120. Right. Well, or maybe they would have said 400. Hmm. <laughs> you exactly. You don't know. 
I was reading recently about how people make decisions and then once they've kind of committed to a decision, they'll essentially create their own reasons to justify why they made it and to act consistently with it. So in my mind, when you're when you're in negotiations with a new company that hasn't hired you yet, you want to give them every single reason to want to hire you and no reasons to say no. And then once they've said yes, now they're propping their decision up with their own justifications and they'll use those to justify anything further like a salary negotiation even you if know, they weren't may, maybe intending to pay you that much initially. I've never framed it exactly that way, but um, I think what you're describing is, is sort of a form of loss aversion. Um, and I, I think you're dead on there. I think that once the company has decided we want this person, which by the way, that's my whole interview strategy is to, is to get them to that point where they're saying, okay, Josh is the candidate for this position. He's mm -hmm. convinced us that he's the candidate and you, you want to switch their thinking from the, the initial way that they think, especially in recruiter land is, What's the minimum that we have to offer this person to get them to fill this role? I got to fill this role. What's the minimum? Is it 70,000, 80,000? Just what is the minimum number? You interview and throughout the interview process, you're convincing them to flip that so that they're thinking, what do we have to do to convince this person to take this job? Yeah. And, and that's exactly what you're talking about. And once they've gotten to that point, now they're in a great position for you to negotiate with because they're thinking, I want to accommodate, 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 as opposed to just get somebody in the door and fill the seat. What's the minimum that we have to spend to do that? Right. Yeah. Um, so think, I think like, you're, you're it's spot good to on think that. of it like a, like with a realtor, like they can show you a zillion houses and then you'll probably pick the cheaper one. But if they show you like a really crappy one and they show you a really nice one, sell you on like, oh, there's a pool. The neighbors are awesome. They give you like free beer every weekend. And then the bidding war starts. And, I, you know, once you've kind of decided like, oh, this is our dream house, you can see ourselves living here. We can see ourselves having kids here. All these all these decisions propping up. You kind of justify paying more even if there is like a bidding war or something. I think you I mean, just Andrew, opened you probably up. had that with, yeah, so, your, with your condo because didn't so you have a did. bidding war with? Yeah. The, yeah, but we had a, an open house. They, they had like 30-something people in my old apartment, which Thomas knows, but if you saw it, like you'd be surprised that that many people <laughs> would, could even fit in there. Jammed in, yeah. So they're all yeah. frothing at the mouth, but I feel like you're onto a more advanced uh, tactic, Thomas, because if you have like a really shitty alternative first and then a really good one next this the second one looks even better so like what if yeah, you you paid someone to to dive <laughs> and to take a dive on the interview right before you <laughs> we just had freddy krueger here he killed the receptionist it's just, just all these holes in the walls and slashes in the paperwork yeah i will take you man <laughs> it's the guy it's the same guy who was throwing rocks earlier you hired him to go do you know some pre-work <laughs> just just show up i need you to show up i'm not even going to tell you what job that you're interviewing for you're going to go interview for this job and you're going to be terrible then i'm going to swoop in right at the end and they're going to think i'm amazing um yeah i, I, like I've I think seen a movie where that happened but i can't remember what it was from but i i could swear i've seen that in a movie or a tv show before like, look your work I, on like uh halloween <laughs> was exceptional but do you freelance for the rest of the year <laughs> right. Yeah, I think you're, you've given me a great idea here for for an article. I've, I've I think I've been kind of nibbling around this idea of loss aversion for a while, um, but I really like the way that that you framed it in terms of once you get them to that point where they want to bring you on, they're not going to want to let you go. And I I framed that kind of the flip side of that, which is people are afraid if they counteroffer that the job offer will just evaporate. Mm. Like, oh, yeah. when you counteroffer, that doesn't happen because you've invested so much to get to the point where you've made somebody an offer that you would just be wasting thousands of dollars and hours of your well, time if you just said, oh, never mind. If you counteroffered, I'm not hiring you. Yeah, exactly. You know? You're not going to just like drop it. Like, I mean, that's not how negotiations go. Oh, I didn't like that. We're dropping the entire thing. Right. They're just going to be like, right. well, that part might not work. Have you um, have you read the book Influence by Robert Cialdini? No, but it's on my Kindle on my reading list with so you know, 40 other books there. If you're interested in this topic, you might want to read it. Um, there's a There's a whole section of the book that talks about how Basically, once people have been persuaded to make a decision, they will act consistently and they'll basically prop that decision up with reasons of their own. And a good example they gave is uh, – and you were mentioning Iowa earlier. Do you live in Iowa, by the way? No, I'm in Florida. Gainesville, Florida. Oh, okay. I live in Iowa. So when you said oh. Iowa, I kind of perked up a bit. They uh, researchers called homeowners in Iowa and they were like, hey, could you maybe not use so much gas in the winter? Like be a little bit more cons – uh, conservative with your energy use and obviously people don't do it unless there's an incentive so they called people up and said hey we will publish your name in the paper as an exemplary example of somebody who saves energy and the people that uh, were called and offered that saved a lot more energy over the winter and then later on 
they were sent a letter being like, oh, it turns out we couldn't actually publish your name in the paper. So they basically pulled the rug out. The original reason for saving energy was taken away. And the interesting thing is people who were told that started saving more because huh. now they had basically created reasons of their own and they've owned the decision. They made it their own uh, to save energy. And now that that original like kind of fake external reason was taken away, now the theory at least is that uh, – they basically own the decision fully, which means they're even more all in on it. That's fast. That's completely the opposite direction of where I thought you were going with this. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like they have to. Super cool. they, they they do like an ex post explanation of why they were saving energy since they're not in the paper. They have to have some reason to justify why they spent six months saving energy, and they say, "Well, it must have been just because I like to save energy and I want to save the world, or whatever." I yeah, so they just keep doing it themselves as conscious people who want to save energy. I just like, love they start, that like, on that role. The scientist running that experiment was just like a real dick. <laughs> right. like only a real asshole yeah yeah like I'm gonna go put you in the paper it's not even that great and he took that away from them right yeah, <laughs> that, he wasn't gonna was, write him a check yeah. for a million dollars it was just you're gonna get your name in the paper and they didn't get that nice <laughs> that was the point of the experiment was um, to see what happens when that original thing is pulled out they also talked about how like in the Korean War um, the, the Chinese communists would get American POWs and they would like have them write essays that were like, basically pro-communist and they would offer up rewards. But they were always really tiny rewards because they wanted to kind of instill that psychological like you made the decision for your own reasons kind of thing. So there wasn't like an excuse of, oh, they offered me mm. the ability to go home or something. It was just like, no, they gave me a cigarette. Uh. And that was it. <laughs> So start to oh, think like maybe maybe I have my own reasons for writing that it isn't writing I made it you know so that kind of thing so for, yeah for a job negotiation situation like once once you've given the company every reason to decide they want you those reasons will justify anything that is maybe a challenge to that such as you wanting to be paid a little more than they were originally intending right know? and really what you're trying to do is my whole salary negotiation strategy is really built around the idea that you don't know what their range is that they're willing to pay you. And mm -hmm. so through just a series of interviews and negotiation steps, you can more or less find out. And one of the yeah. first one is, you know, impressing them continuously throughout the interview. So now you've convinced them to offer you something at the high end of the range they're willing to pay. So good. That's step one. Right. You, you didn't give them a number to key off of to start. So that's step two. And then once they make the offer, then you can counter offer and, and use what you just mentioned as leverage, which is, well, they've got you this close now. They want to close the deal. So they're going to try to accommodate your counter offer in good faith, which means they're going to go a little bit higher. And now you should be pretty close to bumping up against the top end of what they're willing to pay you, which is your whole goal. Right. Um, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully hit the top number or pretty close to it. And would you agree that some companies actually don't 100 percent know what they would be willing to pay you? Because I, I yes. think this would be applicable, applicable more for like smaller companies. But like I'll take myself an as an example. At some point in the future, I want to hire a video editor. And I have like a rough idea in my head of what I would be willing to pay that person. But if I had somebody come in and they were like able to sell me, I'm like, this is what I'm going to do for you. And you're going to make 10000 extra dollars a month because of what I can do. I want $5,000 a month. I'd be like, well, that's way beyond what I was initially willing to pay. But if that's what you can bring me, hell yeah. I'll pay you that, you know? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Um, I'm trying to think if I would say that they don't know. I think sometimes they don't know. But but I will say there are a lot of, uh, you know, sort of back office conversations that happen when you counter offer. Um, I've been part of these conversations in my previous life as a manager where you say, well, they countered and that was definitely more than we were expecting to pay. Um can we accommodate? And so a common way that this will happen is what they'll do is they'll come back and they'll say, oh, we didn't realize you were looking for that much. Um, you were interviewing for a mid-level project manager role. The, the number that you pitched us is actually in the senior project of project develop or project manager role pay range. So um, we might be able to accommodate that, but we you know have to do some more paperwork and see if we can hire you as a senior project manager. And we think that you're qualified for that based on your resume and, and talking to you in the interviews. We, we think you're qualified for that. So let us just see if we can do it. We don't know. And we'll go find out. So the answer is they know how much they're willing to pay a senior project manager. What they didn't know is that they were interviewing a senior project manager. Yeah. Uh, and that's your job is to kind of help them see that. So that's one example of how that can happen. I think also there's a lot more squishy version that you, you kind of describe, which is they kind of huddle up and say, well, you know, we offered them a hundred. 
we really like this candidate. I don't know how long it's going to be before we get another candidate that looks this good on paper and, and is this great for our team and has this kind of fit. So, you know, let's go up. We'll just go 110 and see if they'll take it. I right? see yeah. this. I and see there's this the loss aversion. Mm. Right, right. We don't want to lose them. I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to find a dream house like this with, with such proximity to a lake and good schools. They want 50000 more than I was originally intending to pay. Screw it. Let's do it. You know, same kind yep. of thing. I see this approach working um, if you have a job and it is clear that uh, you could just stay at your job. Like you're going in because you're just kind of playing the field, seeing what's out there. What if um, for whatever reason, because you're an asshole, things just didn't work out, you don't have a job and you're applying to one and the number just isn't what it needs to be. Like, do you have grounds to negotiate or should you expect to get steamrolled because they know you have no option? You can negotiate. Um, the So part of the interview process, as I mentioned earlier, is your job is to convince them that you're the right candidate for the job. And I, every interview, I think this helps um, kind of take the fear out of interviews, is the inter every interview is an opportunity for you to demonstrate that to someone, a new person. And so by the end of the interview process, if you have five, six, seven interviews, hopefully you've convinced all seven of those people that you are the candidate for the job. And that doesn't have anything to do with whether you're currently employed. And so mm -hmm. you do this using, I call it positioning, which I kind of stole from marketing land and, and some other things. But the idea is that when you're talking in your interviews and answering questions, you're not talking about, well, I currently have this job and I have this experience and I've been in this industry for this many years and I know these technologies. What you're saying is things like, as a company, your mission is to accomplish these things and these are the challenges that you're having with accomplishing those things. And I am uniquely qualified to help you address those challenges and reach your goals that are part of your mission. And that's why you should hire me. And you'll notice that nothing in there has anything to do with whether I'm employed right now. And, and if you've done a good job of convincing them of all the things that I just said, then they're not going to be very interested in whether you're employed right now because you've already convinced them you're the right person to hire. So would um, you feel that not having a job is is like a mark against your ability to negotiate or you or you believe that it, it generally has no bearing in it, it, I don't like to use absolute terms like no bearing. And the reason is that there's this factor, the human factor. You don't know who the recruiter is that you're talking to. Mm. But I'll say that mm. in general, I, I don't think that it matters all that much. Um, I think companies, again, companies exist to make money. So if I can make a lot of money with this guy who hasn't had a job in 10 years, or I can make a lot of money with this person who has a great job at another company right now, bring it. I just want to make money. Right. And, yeah. and I'm not trying, I'm not at all trying to make companies out to, to seem a certain way, but that's what really what it can be. To so you're saying like, to. if you say you haven't had a job for 10 months or whatever, it's much more likely that that's holding you back than the employer from hiring you because that's messing with your head. I think so. I, I think if I had to pick one or the other, I would say it's probably having more of an impact on your ability to feel confident and answer questions in an interview in a way that conveys that confidence in your abilities. Um, then it's a sticking point for um, the company that's hiring you, especially if you've you know, if you can kind of account for that time, right? Like, what have you been doing? If you've been sitting on your couch watching TV for 10 months, I wouldn't say that's bad, but it's unfortunate because you could have spent that 10 months learning a new technology or learning a new skill or even just traveling and saying, look, I've been, I, so I guess full disclosure, I took eight months off of work after I finished my MBA and my next job, I made almost 30% more money, <laughs> right? That's awesome. Uh, I, I literally wasn't doing anything for eight months. I quit my job. I had no fallback. I just, uh, went out to Las Vegas and played in the world series of poker, which I know sounds irresponsible. It was not as irresponsible as it sounds. And then began working on side projects and learned how to build web apps. It's such an interesting story. They don't care. They're like, did you win? How was it? Did everyone wear a cowboy hat? <laughs> well, and, and my, my secret weapon was the reason that I got that interview was somebody called me out of the blue. I remember I was watching the Florida Georgia football game on TV in October and somebody called me and texted me and said, hey, uh, you're not working right now, are you? And I said, no. I said, do you want to work right now? And I said, I don't know. What do you got? Well, we need a project manager over here doing this thing. And I said, all right, uh, you know, send me a link or whatever. I applied and negotiated and got the job. And it was no problem because somebody vouched for me. So mm -hmm. nobody cared mm -hmm. that I hadn't worked in eight months because the person who said you should hire Josh was somebody who carried a lot of weight in that company. And they said, well, if this person's recommending Josh, He's got to be legit. So nobody, it never even came up in the interview that I hadn't worked in eight months. It, it, it didn't yeah. matter to anybody at all. All right. So big question for me. When you have multiple offers on the table and the one you want most has like lower pay offer than another one, what's like the most tactful way 
and the way to time it to basically say like company B is offering me way more. Uh, can you guys match that or can you guys beat that? Like, how do you how do you leverage another offer in a nice and, you know, not douchey way? I like this question because there's not a, a great answer to it. Um, this is this is one of the few times when it, it really just totally depends on the particulars of your situation. And and to be honest, this is a lot of what I do when I coach people on salary negotiations is we figure yeah. out how do we juggle these job offers? How do we time these responses? How do we buy more time here? How do we get this company to move faster, make an offer? Um, but in, there are some kind of guidelines that I use and that I teach the people that I coach. Um, that's a lot of what I do, by the way, is when I say coach, I'm not just telling people what to do. I'm saying, let me explain to you why we're doing this so that you don't need to hire me again. Right. Yeah. Um, and so juggling job offers is really tricky because there are no two people with the same situation ever. It's, you know, mm -hmm. well, I have three offers and I have two offers and I got the, the offer I really wanted first or I got the offer I don't care about first. Um, so I think what you do is first you negotiate each one individually. You don't even have to tell them that you have other offers that you're considering. Just negotiate each one the best that you can. You start narrowing them down. And what you'll see is that a timeline starts to emerge where some of them become essentially they're just not even a reasonable thing to consider anymore because they're not going to move fast enough and you don't care enough about them. Or yeah. the one that you really care about is not moving fast enough. Right. And so you'll start to get a clear picture of intuitively, this is what I need to do. This is where I want to focus. This is the one I want. Here's what I need to do to get there. And so mm -hmm. that's when I do think it's one of the few times that I think you should use another offer as leverage, but you're using it as a timing leverage. And so um, I have a counter offer email template also for when you're changing jobs. So when okay. you put that template together, it's a very similar kind of thing where you're making a case, you're stating your counter offer and you're sending it to them. There's a paragraph that's sort of optional <laughs> where you would say, if you have another offer in hand, you might mention, by the way, I just got another offer from IBM and I'm seriously considering it. I just wanted to let you know that I'm talking to them as well. Right. And, and you're not being a jerk about it. You're not saying, and I'm going to walk. You're letting them know I've got another offer in hand. And that's the way you can expedite that second offer where you sent that letter. Right. Because mm -hmm. they're going to see that and say, oh, well, we get we better start getting serious here because there's almost always some slack in the, in the process where they can tighten it up if they want. Right. Like we don't need yeah. that on site interview. We don't have to do this other interview. We don't have to spend all this time. So yeah, that's kind absolutely. of a general a general time when you would use it is you you'll get a sense intuitively of like, OK, this is starting to shape up so that this one needs to move faster. This one I can just discard. I don't even care about it. And this other one needs to move slower and you can start doing things to kind of make people move faster and make people move slower. Ask for more time or tell them, hey, I have a, another offer I'm considering. I'm just letting you know they want an answer by Friday. I'm counter offering you right now. You should probably get back to me by Friday if you really want to play ball. What about consolation? Like not consolation prizes, but you you went to negotiate higher for the new job or for the one you have. And for whatever reason, it wasn't going to happen. Um, is it uh, weird or, or appropriate to be like, um, well, okay, fine, but I want an extra week's vacation or some, some other soft thing uh, so you could still push and maybe they can, you know, appease you and you'll get, you'll get more, you know, but it's not money. Yeah. So, um, this mostly applies, I guess it could apply when you're asking for a raise at your current job, but there's so much more, um, sort of rigidity once you're in a company. Um, it's, it's just harder to move around. And this is why I, I really advocate that people negotiate hard when they're changing jobs and get the absolute best that they can. Um, so I'll take your question in sort of the context of changing jobs in that I think you, you articulated it really well, which is, I think you should start with base salary first. That's your first thing. And the reason is that you can pay your mortgage and your car payment with base salary, right? You can go on vacation with your base salary. Um, mm. you can, you can also go on vacation with vacation time, which is really close to base salary, right? Mm. You, you can figure out the value of a week of vacation. Um, yeah. you cannot go on vacation with a target bonus. I mean, you might once it's paid out, but you sure can't plan one ahead of time because who knows if your company is going to hit their metrics, right? Mm -hmm. So you start with base salary and my kind of, my general rule of thumb is that you should have a, have your plan in mind for what you're trying to get in base salary and then have two or three other things that you called soft things, which I think is a good term there that you're also interested in working with it once you've maximized base salary. And what I mean by that is the rule of thumb for me is you make an ask. So you offer me $50,000. I counter offer at $60,000. You don't come up to 60,000. You come up to 55,000 and meet me in the middle. And I say, great. I really appreciate you moving. I was hoping to get 60,000. You came up to 55,000. That's very generous of you. I appreciate it. If you could do 55,000 and an extra week of paid vacation every year, I'm on board. Mm. Right. And, and so you're essentially taking the, um, 
the not quite full yes that they give you. They're not saying yes. They're saying no, but we'll compromise here. And you say, great. Well, your last answer was no. So I'm going to ask for something else until you either get to a yes or you run through those two or three things, other things that you had. And you'll have yeah. max base salary, max vacation, max signing bonus, max relocation package at the end. Max everything. That's what you want to do. And, and if they say, yeah, so if you counter at 60 and they say, yeah, 60 sounds good, then you're done. Right. Yeah. I think that you should be you should be countering at a number that if they say yes to that number, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And so you, it, it's I don't recommend countering at a number like that and then expecting if they say, yeah, we'll give you 60. You go, great. Thanks for 60. I also want another week of vacation because if you put yourself in that yeah. person's shoes, now you're wondering, like, well, how long is this going to go on? Like how many of these things does the guy have? Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, That's another thing that they talk about in that book influence. Whereas like when when people perceive that it's genuine and not you exploiting them, when they reject something you ask for and then you come back with a like a conciliatory offer, they're much more likely to to basically give it to you because yeah, it's almost like they feel like they're um, like they have to concede something because you did. It's like the social contract. Whereas if they give you what you counter offer for and then you're coming back with even more things like now you just kind of look like a dick who's just trying to get like squeeze as much as you can out of the deal. And it comes off as like you're taking advantage of them. Whereas like yeah. if, if you are like, all right, I'll take your rejection. Can we do this instead? Then it just looks like you're trying to meet in the middle. You know? Yeah. By the way, Which I just wrote down in my little notebook here. I wrote down read influence so that it maybe moves up from my <laughs> my my 50 books on my Kindle list to an actual book that I read. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it, there's a fine line in negotiation where on one hand, I'm I'm an advocate for for candidates. Right. Like I, I want yeah. I want people to to get as much money as they can, because the bottom line is that it's really no skin off the company's nose that they pay you another five thousand dollars. It's not going to affect their bottom line anyway. And it could really change your life to have another five thousand dollars. And you get very few opportunities to take advantage of that. Um, and so you should. I also think, though, and this is why I focus on collaboration and not confrontation. There's a lot of sort of meta considerations that you have to take into account. Like I got to work with people at this company. Um, and you don't want to be a jerk to people you're going to work with. I think it's fine to negotiate against people that you're going to work with, even the hiring manager. I think it's fine to negotiate hard and advocate for yourself hard. Um, I don't think that it's a great idea to do things that might be perceived as shady or yeah. uh, unethical because they're, what, what happens is they just kind of get that feeling of buyer's remorse right away. They're like, oh, well, we already made him an offer and we have to justify the offer. We're going to go ahead and bring him in. But what other shenanigans is he going to try and pull now that he's working here? And I've had this yeah. happen before. Um, I, we hired somebody and immediately they kind of started talking to people that they really shouldn't have been talking to yet. And, and just kind of, you know, shaking things up in a way that was like, well, look, if, if we'd known that you were going to come in and try these things, I wouldn't have extended a job offer to you. Right. Like mm-hmm. we thought we were getting something and we got something else. So you want to make sure that they feel comfortable with you as a person working with you 40 hours a week for the next two years. Um, yeah. and, and you can kind of, you know, ruin that by just doing shady stuff. Don't do shady stuff. Yeah. Don't do shady stuff. All that's right. Pretty, well, that's a good rule. Good quote. I think that that's, that's a good, a good bit of advice to end on. I actually want to, um, I just want to highlight like, one more question. Well, I want to highlight something. one thing that we kind of like okay. talked about in the beginning, Josh brought up and, and the conversation took a life of its own, but mm-hmm. I thought, I thought it was really valuable. And he had mentioned having like uh, one-on-ones with your manager at oh, like, yeah, yeah. at some meaningful interval. You know, maybe it's like bi-weekly, monthly. Um, not necessarily a question so much as I think that is like perhaps one of the best pieces of advice where you first put that in place and you talk to your boss a couple times about, I don't know, the weather, uh, random shit at work. And on like the fifth meeting brooch, possible you know raise um but this way like if you have something consistent schedule with your boss you could always cancel there's nothing to say but there's time set aside for you so it's not like this weird thing come into the office with me i have something to tell you and he's like oh my god is he leaving like is he having a baby like it's just it's a normal thing i i thought that was a really good um piece of advice yeah i i agree and as a former manager um I was a, one of my favorite things to do as part of my job was to have one-on-ones with the people on my team because you get so much good information that way about, you know, I learned all kinds of stuff about like, man, this person is really struggling with something that's going on at home. And that helps me as a manager to understand, like, I need to be cognizant of that and I need to be careful how hard I'm pushing them and show them a a little slack. 
Um, and it just keeps the lines of communication open. Sometimes, like you said, you, nobody's going to have anything to say, but knowing that, well, next Wednesday, I'm, I'm going to talk to my manager for half an hour. Just knowing that will make things a lot easier for you because you say, well, I'll, I'll just bring this up then. And maybe it resolves itself, right? Mm. Um, and so I, I, my guess is you guys have a lot of managers that listen to your show. And if you're a manager and you're not having regular one-on-ones with your employees, think about doing it. Uh, I think that should be one of your top priorities as a manager is just giving your employees an opportunity to talk to you as a person and share their concerns, um, give you feedback, um, get your feedback, and then occasionally talk about salary or extra vacation time or something like that. You know, and, and, and not yeah. even, although I do think it's a very good reason to just like uh, hear what's going on, give them an outlet. But I think like everyone has like weird anxieties about their job or things they do or they're insecure. Like last week, maybe did people think I'd not like worked hard enough or whatever? Like, um, and just kind of, you appreciate being able to tell that to your manager and have them be like, no, actually like you did a great job. Just keep doing what you're doing. Like if you give that to your, your people, I think they will be much more loyal and tied to you than if like they have to like mold this stuff and let it like fester in their head. Yeah, I, I think uh, you're dead on. I mean, I think it's a great practice to have regular one-on-ones. There's a lot of benefits to it, and I honestly can't think of a single drawback. Um, I guess it consumes time, but even that isn't a real drawback if you zoom out because you're going to save a lot of time on net because you're going to be putting out far fewer fires mm. um, if you're really in touch with what's going on with your employees because you're going to head off client escalations or big mistakes mm. or um, projects that totally derail because nobody was really paying attention to the timeline and stuff like that. And they're mm -hmm. all people. Brains break. Yep. They just don't always work well. So, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. I think this is this is a really good episode, and people are going to get a lot out of it. And uh, I think, like, even I started thinking about this topic in different ways. Like, I had never connected it to house buying and negotiating and business quite as much as I think we did here. So. This is really good. And uh, Josh, I know you have like a book and you have courses and stuff. So if people want to learn more, maybe even hire you as a coach to help them negotiate their next salary move, where should they go? Sure. So the easiest and most direct way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Josh Duty. Um, mm -hmm. And my book is. How many is called O's are in Duty? Two. Okay. It's duty like Howdy Duty. Uh, I don't cool. know. Now, that probably doesn't hit anybody in your audience. But um, yeah. So my dad <laughs> used to watch it when he was a kid. <laughs> there you go. Mine too. I've never watched a full episode of Howdy Duty, uh, I confess. Um, so that's Twitter. And then my book is called Fearless Salary Negotiation. And you can find out all you want to know about Fearless Salary Negotiation at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. Um, I'm also going to send you guys some links. I, I wrote down a couple of links to send you for like the email templates that I mentioned, for example. Um, I got a lot of them on my site, but I'll send you direct links so you can you can point people to them. Awesome. Um, and, and then, then we'll the put them all in the show notes. Yeah, great. And then the, the last one is uh, freeraisecourse.com, which is where you can go uh, to, to learn about really common salary mistakes that people make that cost them a lot of money. Is it so, free? It is free. 100 percent free <laughs> as advertised. <laughs> free raise course, only twenty dollars. <laughs> I didn't know if there was like someone called raise course and they're in jail. You just got to make sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a R-A-Y apostrophe S course. And even, yeah, we're trying to we're just trying to get him out. Um, we got to so get Ray out of jail. Help, help us out with Ray. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. And uh, to anybody listening, if you guys have extra questions about this topic or anything related to personal finance or your job and career, listen, money matters at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, we'd love to hear your questions. We use them on future episodes. Maybe we'll port some over to Josh if something is particularly in his wheelhouse. So let us know what you're thinking. And you can also find our favorite books, apps, tools for managing your money and growing your career prospects over at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Later, gentlemen. Later, man. See ya. Please tell your friends about this show.